right, hello and welcome to the Safe Passage Podcast. I'm Olivia and I'm here today with Carrie. Hi, Carrie. Hi, Olivia. How's it going? I'm well. How are you? Good. I'm good. How's your How's your week been? It's been a little hectic, but good. <laughs> yeah, I feel like that's that's how most weeks are. Right? Just a little hectic. A little bit of everything going on. Yeah. <laughs> good. Well, I'm so excited to have you on today. We have a lot of really interesting and fun stuff to hear from you. Do you want to just tell us a little bit about who you are before we get started? Sure. I am a client service specialist, also a court advocate with Safe Passage, which means I do a lot of court stuff um, and just general advocacy as well. Fantastic. So you have all kinds of really awesome experiences and expertise to share with us, and I'm super excited about it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We're also excited because it's October and at the time we're recording this, it's the first day of October, which is so fun. Um, So not only is it the spooky month, but October is also Domestic Violence Awareness Month. Yay! Which is obviously at Safe Passage, we work in domestic violence and sexual violence. So this is a big month for us because it's kind of one of the main focuses of our work. (laughs) So Domestic Violence Awareness Month actually started in the 1980s, and it originated from what was called a Day of Unity. The National Coalition Against Domestic Violence started, and they observed it by just like kind of connecting advocates and workers who were kind of working to end violence. So they had a bunch of cool like activities and awareness spreading events, um, sharing survivor stories and all kinds of interesting things. So over time, this day of unity evolved into a week of cool activities and things that people would do. So in October of 1987, the National Coalition observed the first Domestic Violence Awareness Month. Um, And so kind of evolved that day of unity into a week of unity to a month that was Domestic Violence Awareness. And cool fun fact... 1987 was also the first year that a national domestic violence hotline was made available. So then a couple years later, Congress passed legislation to designate October as Domestic Violence Awareness Month nationally. So there's our little bit of a history lesson for what Domestic Violence Awareness Month is. (laughs) So in observance, we have you here, Carrie, to kind of talk with us about what I think is a really significant part of the domestic violence process for survivors. You know, I feel like you'll talk more about this, but court and legal systems, I think can be a very like encompassing piece of experience with the whole process of dealing with domestic violence. So I'm really excited to hear more about it. Just a quick note for the listeners. This episode, like many episodes in this podcast contains discussions of sexual assault and domestic violence. If these are sensitive topics for you, please take appropriate precautions. And just a reminder, Safe Passage advocates are available to talk 24-7 at 208-664-9303. So you work in the court, so I guess let's just kind of jump right into it. What happens, sort of like first steps, if there's a survivor that's dealing with things, if they want to maybe report an abuse or an assault, what is kind of the initial process? What are the, what's the process that they go through just from the beginning? The first step would be contacting law enforcement. 
and um, contacting law enforcement and making a report. Then once the report is filed with law enforcement, law enforcement starts investigating and finding out if they have enough um, probable cause or enough evidence to um, take the report to the prosecuting attorney's office for them to file charges. So kind of basic sort of steps for any legal proceeding. Yes. So as they're going through that process, as we know, we work with survivors all the time and different people are different and different situations are different. But what are some patterns that you often see? Like, is this, how can this be really helpful and empowering for people or how could it be maybe dangerous or unpleasant for some people? Well, for most victims of domestic violence, they've been told to don't ever call the police, that the police won't help you. No one can help you. And so for some, going to the police is the first step in regaining their power over the abuser. And for others, um, it can make the situation a lot worse because Mm -hmm. they've been threatened with bodily harm if they call the police and the abuser could very well follow through with that threat. Mm -hmm. And that can be really scary for a lot of people. Yes. I've also, I've heard in a lot of cases, it can feel frustrating for people to feel like, you know, maybe their case is kind of out of their hands. It's being handled by strangers and kind of feel like the situation's a bit out of their own control. Right. Which can be really frustrating in a lot of situations. Yeah. Just because you go and file a report today, it could take months before there's any anything done about anything. And in the meantime, you don't really know. I mean, if you call the law law enforcement, they'll just tell you, we're investigating. We're still investigating. So you know that you filed a report, but the abuser is still there in your face every day. And you're just waiting for some system to, to save you from him. And that's not ever an easy position no. to be in. No. So what about, are there ever situations where maybe law enforcement or the legal system gets involved and maybe that survivor doesn't necessarily want that or they don't want to report? Um, A lot of the times when the police were called and someone, the abuser is arrested, um, once he goes to first appearances, the judge at first appearances puts what's called a no contact order in place. And then no contact order is just what it sounds like. It means absolutely no contact, no telephone calls, no emailing, no text messaging. And that order is put in place by a judge. So the only person that can remove that order is a judge. And oftentimes you have victims that have children. um, They live in a rental property abuser is the one who pays the rent. They don't know how the rent's going to be paid, nor can they contact him to find out how the rent's going to be paid. So it causes a whole lot of issues for the victim as well as the abuser. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I feel like it's having children in the picture can really make these situations a lot more frightening. Yeah. Um, And a lot more scary, you know, they obviously aren't wanting their children to live or stay with the person who's causing that harm. And I feel like the other piece, too, is if they're living with that person or relying on that person for resources like housing or financial support or, you know, health care or things like that, you know, being even afraid that like once they're separated, they could even lose that means to 
provide for their children or, or care for their children, which can be really, really scary. Yeah. And I mean, it, yeah, it is scary. And obviously the other piece of that is this person who may not be nice to this victim at all is the children's father and the children, regardless of what he is, they love him Mm -hmm. and they want to know where did daddy go? And you don't really have the, I mean, you don't really have the answers for them. Yeah. I think it's a lot more to like weigh in your head when you're kind of trying to make that decision of like whether you want to report something or you want to press charges. There's a lot more to like weigh and think about than I think a lot of people are, we often realize. Yeah. And they've also um, sometimes been threatened that the children will be taken from them if they ever call law enforcement. Mm-hmm. And the last thing they want is to lose their children. So it's safer for them to stay because at least they have their children than the thought of not having their children or not ever seeing their children again. Yeah, absolutely. We've talked about it on this podcast before, some of those reasons why people stay in those relationships, even if it's hurtful or harmful to them. There's a lot of reasons that people stay and that those are exactly some of them. It's, I think, a lot more difficult to leave or to go through these legal processes than I think a lot of us realize. Right. Well, and especially if you have no money. Mm-hmm. And you don't have you. Some of these women have never worked. They've always taken care of the children. They've always been home. So some of them have a high school diploma and they haven't been in school for 10, 15 years. So they feel like they have no skills. They won't be able to get a job. They also know he's never going to pay them child support. So how are they supposed to support their families? Mm-hmm. Yeah, especially in situations where maybe the like keeping someone at home or taking control of finances was part of the abuse tactic that was happening. Yeah. Can make it even more tough. Yes. And then you have a a no contact order put in place by a judge. And the only way it can be removed is by that judge. That judge gets to decide. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes in the very beginning of a case, the judge will not. They will not terminate the no contact order. So looking at, I know, you know, we just talked a bit about no contact orders. I know another kind of big piece of your work is a civil protection order. So do you want to talk a little bit about kind of like what a civil protection order is and like how that's maybe a little bit different from, there's kind of different processes for both. Right. So a civil protection order is um, an order that anybody seeking protection from another person can file for. In Idaho, the statute says that it has to be Um, intimate partner or like mother, brother, family member. And then so you fill out the paperwork and you're asking a judge to protect you from this person, which means no contact, uh, no phone calls. They can't be within 500 feet of you. And oftentimes for our survivors, this is a step of empowerment for them because the abuser cannot imagine not being able to contact them. So for a victim to get one of the as civil protection order granted and then just to the peace that comes with it because he cannot contact her. He can't, you know, text message her 500 times a day. He can't call her 40 times a day. And it just brings them some peace and it gives them time and space for them to get their thoughts together 
and kind of decide what they really want to do. Yeah. It takes a, I think a big like burden of interacting with that person or even living with that person or hearing from them to, yeah, like you said, sort of gather themselves together and make the next choice. And it seems so simple, but you should be able to just ask someone, please stop contacting me. Mm -hmm. And they would do that. But to actually get it, have to get a piece of paper from a judge that says they cannot, then that is very empowering. And even just to have like someone else who's kind of, you know, in the legal system, another professional, like be like, yes, this person needs to stop contacting you can feel very validating. Right. And oftentimes I, I mean, I've been in civil protection order hearings where I don't think that the abuser realizes how many times they've text messaged her Mm -hmm. until the judge says, There's over 200 text messages in one day. Wow. Because you can see them in court. It was like a light went on. Like, wow, that that is, that's a lot. And they didn't realize it was a lot until it's put in a number from someone else. Yeah, absolutely. So are there any like limitations to what a civil protection order does? Or like, can it ever harm survivors in a way? Um, It can because... For a civil protection order, when you first fill out the paperwork and you take it to the court, it is read that day by a judge. And if granted, then in two weeks, a hearing takes place. Well, that hearing, the person who filed the protection order is the petitioner. The person that they want to leave them alone is the respondent. And the respondent has the right to stand up and say why they don't want this protection order. So... Two weeks after the original order is granted, the victim has to face her abuser in court Mm -hmm. to try to get this protection order to stay in place. And I mean, I've been there where they're fine up until the moment they have to speak. And Mm -hmm. then he's staring them down. So they cannot, they cannot speak. And the order's been dismissed because they simply couldn't go through with it. Because just him looking at them is threatening enough that they know if they go through with it, that he may very well harm them. Yeah. And it just kind of feels, you know, I know we've talked before on this podcast about domestic violence and domestic abuse being a pattern of power and control. So that just feels like it's another way of them, even though they, you know, are being told they can't contact them. It's just another way of them having that power, trying to have that control over the survivor. Right. And the judges, I mean, they do their best to make that, make that sure that doesn't happen, Mm -hmm. but they can't do anything to stop what he's told her in her head. She can hear those things as he sit and she can feel him staring her down, even if she doesn't look at him. Yeah. Which is really scary. Yeah. Something we do a lot at Safe Passage is a lot of discussing these dynamics with survivors and kind of talking about like, you know, is this going to be a safe option and what are some of those risks? Yeah. And you know, civil protection order, there's many abusers that think that's just a piece of paper. That's mm-hmm. not going to protect you from anything. And they think they're above the law and they continue to break the protection order mm-hmm. until they're arrested for it. Yeah. That's scary. And right. I think, you know, once that goes into place, I think there's a real risk of the, you know, control or abusive behaviors becoming more drastic. Yep. If they're willing to break that protection order, they may be willing to do even scarier things. Right. And then if that's the case and they they break the protection order 
and they are arrested for it, then usually they'll be charged and a no contact order is put in place. Mm -hmm. But even that sometimes to them is just a piece of paper. Yeah. And that's when our victims literally have to flee their homes and places they've known and go to places they don't know to -hmm. get away from him. Yeah. And that just makes everything a whole step more uncertain and frightening for most people. Yeah. So are there any other situations that you often work with or that you often see that bring someone into in contact with the court system or with legal systems? Custody, family law, in a lot of these cases, their children are involved. So the abuser likes to use the custody. They oftentimes will file first before a victim could file. And then that way they kind of had the upper hand over court and because they've filed and they also, they have money. So they'll get attorneys that cost a lot of money that are very good attorneys. And then the victim has to go up against this attorney oftentimes on her own without an attorney because she simply cannot afford one. And we also have where um, victims are charged with criminal domestic violence charges because, you know, they were fighting and he was doing whatever. And maybe a neighbor called the police and she was protecting herself and maybe scratched him or slapped him. And when the police show up, he convinces the police that she's the one that put her hands on him. And then she's arrested and there's criminal charges put against her for domestic violence. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't make the, that make just makes the whole rest of the legal process a lot more complicated and tough for them to navigate. Yeah. And oftentimes when that happens, if there's children, then the children are and they were present in the home when this all happened, then they're put on the no contact order with the abuser and mom is taken to jail and arrested and mom cannot contact anybody. So she doesn't know what's happening with her kids. She doesn't know what's happening in her home. And now she has to go through this whole criminal case, which can take up a year, up to a year to finalize. Yeah. And oftentimes they end up pleading guilty to something they didn't even do just to make it stop. And I think that that can kind of potentially add a lot more fear, especially if there are children involved or there are children who are, you know, maybe living with that person who's been being abusive. That can add a lot more fear of like not wanting to do anything wrong because they don't want to like cause more difficulty with the situation with their kiddos. Right. Because they're just trying to protect their kids. They can put up with whatever as long as their kids are okay. Yeah. So as somebody is kind of navigating these court systems, obviously this has a lot of, can cause a lot of stress, a lot of maybe confusion or frustration. Are there any other impacts that it can have, like dealing with these systems on their life? Uh, It can uh, create homelessness or just the threat of homelessness. Oftentimes victims lose their jobs because they have to be to court so often. Mm -hmm. They lose friends because their friends don't want to go through these court processes and don't think they should be, or family members may be angry because they took a civil protection order out against the abuser and they've never seen him be abusive. And it causes a lot of trauma on not only the victim, but their children as well. Yeah, definitely. And I think 
even just having, you know, either the threat of homelessness or, you know, losing other people in their lives or even just the stress that dealing with like all of these legal and court-based systems can really, I think, significantly affect people's mental health, which we know can, you know, have a lot of effects in all the other areas of their lives. Yeah. It makes them feel alone, like they have no one. Mm-hmm. We hear that a lot at Safe Passage, that if it weren't for us, they don't know where they would be because everybody else had abandoned them. Mm. So on that note, um, what are some things kind of specifically that we do to help people? I know we've referenced it a lot throughout throughout this discussion so far, but just kind of narrowing down, like, what is it that we do at Safe Passage? Um, well, we support them through every step of the court process. We assist them with filling out court papers for uh, civil protection orders, no contact order termination modification requests. We have resources for assisting them in filing for divorce and custody. We also work closely with legal aid who will oftentimes take their cases if they can't afford an attorney. We have programs in place that keep our survivors from becoming homeless and assisting them to find stable housing. We have resources to help in just about any kind of situation. Because no two people are alike, neither is every domestic violence situation. And we are provide we pride ourselves in having the ability to help when all hope is lost. I love that. So you're pretty directly involved in a lot of this. But how is like the work that you do specifically, how is that different from like maybe an attorney or um, someone else who's kind of based in like law enforcement or the court system? How is your work different from that? Well, first of all, we're not, we don't give legal advice. We're not attorneys. Mm -hmm. And we're all about giving people choices. We're not about telling people what they need to do, what they should do. Oftentimes victims have never been able to make choices. Every choice has been made for them. So we simply support them through their decisions. Even if they're not the right choices, we support them. And then, you know, if they make a mistake, which is normal, we're all people, we all make Mm -hmm. mistakes, we help them to find other choices and to make the choices which are best for them. I think that's such an important piece of of that is to kind of give them those options so that they can make their own choices and kind of have that control over their own lives and their own stories. Yeah. And I mean, that's a huge thing for them. Mm -hmm. Most people, when they come here, they've lost all hope. And I, I like to think that that's what we do at Safe Passage. We give people back their hope. I love that. So do you have any like hopeful or happy stories of people you've worked with? Yeah. I recently got a call from one of the first clients I ever worked with here, which was almost three years ago. When I had first started working with this client, she felt like her life was hopeless. She had been a victim of abuse for 30 years and felt like she was going to die from the abuse. Fast forward six months and many talks later, she finally got the nerve to leave her husband and file for divorce. I supported her through filing for a civil protection order, removing him from the home and protecting her from him. We then assisted her in finding a family law attorney to help with her divorce case. Throughout the divorce proceedings, there were many times when this client was ready to give up. 
I simply reminded her to look forward to what her life would look like after the divorce was final. Last week when she called, it was to tell me that her divorce had been finalized at the beginning of September and that she would be moving into her beautiful new home on October 1st. She called to thank me for sticking by her throughout the process and for always giving her hope. I let her know that I would still be here if she ever needed me and also how happy I was for her and proud of her for overcoming all she had been through. That's so nice. I love that. I love looking at these stories like this because I think we look and we do kind of a deep dive into, you know, some of the difficulties people face and, you know, how tough it can be and how frustrating it can be. But I, I love hearing these stories about kind of looking at, you know, the full the full journey. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I just think that's really nice. I love it. I know that you have even more stories like that. Like this isn't just an isolated incident. You do a lot of really great work. And I know that, you know, you. Thank you. You do work. <laughs> I think we all do. I think, I think so. Team. Yeah, I think so. I agree with you. <laughs> That doesn't mean our jobs are easy. <laughs> it can be tough. Uh, so what do you do to take care of yourself? Like, I, Because I know that, you know, people that you work with are going through a lot of really tough and difficult things and you're walking right alongside them through that oftentimes. So like, what do you do after a really especially tough day or difficult case? What do you do to take care of yourself? I like to walk. And I like, as I'm walking, I just like to process everything and just let it go. Shake it off usually. And yeah. by the time I'm done with my walk, I feel lighter and then I can go on with my evening. And on especially tough days, I always treat myself to a good old fashioned cheeseburger. Yes. I love that. <laughs> do you have a special cheeseburger place that you go to? I do. Messy. Here at Lake. That's my place. Perfect. I've never been there, but now I'll need to, I'll need to oh, go. Yeah. When you guys go out to Timberlake, you'll have to. Yeah, Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> and this is such a good time of year to walk too. Oh, I love. Yeah. I do like two miles every day. Usually. Mm, that's good. Yeah. Plus it's pretty right now, all the different leaves and stuff. So super pretty. It's not quite too hot. It's not quite too cold. Yeah. <laughs> not raining yet. Yeah. Not yet. We have a little bit of a break from the smoke right now. <laughs> yeah. We're just thankful. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. This was like, this was such good information. Super interesting. You have such an interesting job. I sometimes feel like you're just like running your own little mini episode of the good fight or something. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Thank you for having me. Of course. Always come back anytime. (laughs) Yeah. Any other um, notes or things that you, that you want to mention that you didn't get a chance to at all? Nope. I think we covered it all. All right. Awesome. Well, for the listeners, um, some things you can do for Domestic Violence Awareness Month. Safe Passage has a handful of things going on. We are painting some Domestic Violence Awareness Month rocks. We're painting them sparkly purple and we're leaving them around the Coeur d'Alene area. So if you see those, you can take pictures of them or you can leave them somewhere else around the Coeur d'Alene area. But those are kind of a fun way to spread awareness and start conversations about domestic violence. But, you know, you don't need a rock to start conversations. We can start conversations about healthy relationships, respect, domestic abuse, things like that at any time. So keep an eye out for those rocks. Also keep an eye out on our social media throughout the month of October. We are spreading a lot of 
really great information and resources about domestic violence and organizations and agencies that can help and things that we can do as a community. So make sure we're keeping up on those conversations um, and sharing resources if people in our lives need those resources as well. We also have some coffee sleeves that we're handing out at some different coffee shops in the area. So keep an eye out for those coffee sleeves, really cute little uh, purple domestic violence awareness coffee sleeves. If you see those things, let us know. Um, you can contact us. Um, you can go to safepassageid.org. You can email safety at safepassageid.org. You can call us 24-7 at 208-664-9303. You can text 208-449-7228. You can also follow us on social media, on Facebook, or on Instagram at safepassageteen or safepassageid. So if you want more ideas of how you can observe Domestic Violence Awareness Month, or if you want to contact us, if you have seen our rocks or you've seen our coffee sleeves, you can give us a call, you can text us, you can tag us on social media, but just make sure we're still engaging in these conversations because it is very important um, and it's really helpful to kind of spread that awareness and share resources with each other. So thanks so much to the community for listening and for everything that you're doing for survivors in our community. We very much appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Have a great rest of your day, Carrie. Thanks so much again for coming on. Bye-bye. Bye.